Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Each week we pick a saga, provide a brief summary, and judge the actions of the characters at The Saga Thing. Now, but we start this episode by saying uh, thank you very much to those of you who got on board with our podcast so quickly. Yes. Uh, Many of you before we'd even posted our first episodes. Yeah, I know. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, I hope that everyone who's listening enjoys what we're doing and... And maybe maybe you'll be willing to suffer through some of our initial clumsiness as we grow into the whole podcasting thing. Right, and develop a much more mature clumsiness as we go forward. Yes. Uh, so, Andy, we've wrapped up Problem Kill, and our listeners are hungry for more. What do we have for them this week? One of our favorites, John. Let me just hit this button over here. This week on Saga Thing, the classic tale of the people of air, set on the beautiful Snaffelsnest Peninsula in Western Iceland. Starring the enigmatic leading man of Saga Literature's greatest episode, Snorri the Goldie. You'll be on the edge of your seat as he competes with the charismatic young upstart, Arnkel Thorolfsson. Hey Arnkel, this peninsula isn't big enough for the two of you. Don't miss the battle of peace-loving Thor in the Black and Thorbjorn the South. And who could forget the villainous brigand Osbak and his terrible band of thieves. Watch as they terrorize their neighbors, pillage a whale carcass, and do battle with Snorri the Gothi. Will Snorri have what it takes to end Osbak's reign of terror? If it's romance you're looking for, then look no further. Meet Katla and Gerrit, two witches vying for the love of one young man. And if witches aren't your cup of tea, there's more. Get swept off your feet by the alluring warrior poet Bjorn the Breidavik champion as he woos Snorri's sister Thurid away from her husband. But this saga's not just for lovers. What are those spooky noises coming from the farms in the Broadbreaker district? You're sure to get the shivers when the dead gather round the fire with the living and the land is overrun by ghosts. Who will live? Who will die? Who will rise to prominence and who will fall? Find out this week in... Erbigya Saga! So, we're going to use that silly music every time. I, I hope so. I think it adds a nice touch, don't you? If you say so. Either way, this should be a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, before we dig into our summary section, we should offer up some background info on this particular saga. Yeah. Uh, like most of the sagas, Erbidja's saga is written right around the end of the Commonwealth era. Right. The exact date's not known, just like most medieval texts, actually. Uh, but some critics believe that it's simple style and it's got unexaggerated characters and it uses a specific stanza form that you see in, um, actually, the Sturlunga saga. Um, so they use that to somewhat, to kind of date it to the early 13th century. But who knows? Well, regardless of when it's written, it's one of the longer sagas. Though nowhere near the longest, is mm. it? it? It weighs in at 39,133 words. Which, for comparison's sake, is about 4.29 Hrofenkel sagas. What? So we're measuring sagas in Hrofenkels now? I think we must. It's, it's the smoot of our podcast. With the smoot. All right. Well, as long as it's an official unit of measurement, I guess I'm okay. Just trust me. I've checked with the authorities. It's been approved. <laughs> uh, now, one of the reasons the saga is so long is because it's a regional saga covering a long historical period stretching from the settlement age in the late 9th century through to the early 11th century, uh, shortly after the uh, conversion to Christianity. Hmm. It's worth noting that Snorri the Gothi, who's one of the central figures of the saga. And our hero. And your hero, I think this is important <laughs> to note, uh, Andy's personal hero. Uh, Snorri is recognized as the founding father of some of 13th century Iceland's most powerful families. 
Uh, in fact, as some of you may have guessed, Snorri Sturluson you, is the infamous Snorri Sturluson. The infamous, I'm sorry, the infamous Snorri Sturluson not only gets his name from Snorri the Gothi, he's also a direct descendant. And taking the connection one step further, the Sturluson family Gothorth, or chieftaincy, actually is the same Gothorth that was held by Snorri the Gothi. Oh, yeah. So the Airbergi saga is really uh, an interesting saga for comparison with the Sturlunga Age, which you might remember we talked about mm-hmm. briefly in episode 1b. So Snorri's rise to power is an important part of the saga, but it's only one part of what is a very complicated saga. Yeah, uh, Snorri is really just one of many characters at the head of a prominent family. Uh, Erbiga Saga is interested in all the families and farmsteads of the region, their shifting alliances, and the struggle for dominance over what is really a really important part of Iceland. So the feuds that erupt in this saga tend to be multi-layered, long-lasting, and they give shape to the future power dynamics of an entire quarter of Iceland. And when I put it that way, I really don't know how we're going to cover it in one episode. So are you backing out, John? You scared? I'm just making an observation. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. There are two different men named Thorstein Codbiter in this saga. <laughs> I regard that as a sign that we're entering choppy water. I don't know what a Codbiter is. <laughs> well, listen up and you'll learn. <laughs> so if it makes you feel any better, critics aren't always quite sure what to do with the saga either. It doesn't necessarily fit into some mm. of those neat little packages we like to put saga narratives into, like uh, Hrofenkel saga is really the story of Hrofenkel if you want to. But uh, this one's mm. about everything. So I tend to like the saga, but I was surprised when uh, I looked into it and found that a lot of critics don't share my enthusiasm for it. Uh, Gabriel Turville Peter, for example, complained that it has none of those excellencies of construction which are admired in many sagas. It is a series of scenes and stories which follow the disordered course of life itself. Boy, I can't tell if that's a compliment or not. I don't know. Uh, That seems a little bit harsh, but wait until you hear what Theodore M. Anderson has to say, John. He says, Er Erbigis Saga is a somewhat faceless story. The protagonist does not hold the narrative together or guide the action. He merely reacts to events. There are none of the vivid scenes that occur in many of the sagas. There is no sharp dialogue, no melancholy exchanges, no really sustained narrative. There, there, are no dramatic, there are no dramatic moments with which to organize the action and commit it to memory. But wait, John, he's not done. He concludes by saying, The story is not incisively articulated. As a result, the narrative does not flow easily and is less compelling to read than almost any other saga. Ouch. Harsh criticism. So, not a fan? It would appear not. I think he's more of a lax dollar man. He's entitled to his opinion, I guess so. Now, Jonas Christensen, who we've mentioned before, is a bit more forgiving. He admits that the saga is episodic and somewhat difficult for the reader to follow and, quote, keep it all clear in mind. Uh, But he also acknowledges that individual episodes are superbly told, and given the way the work was conceived and its strands interwoven its whole composition must be counted as a masterpiece. That makes me feel slightly better about Christensen, but it really doesn't reassure me any about Erbidget <laughs> uh, and about getting through yeah, Erbidget. Uh, the, the point about the episodic nature of the saga is well made, though. It's one of the things we struggled with in trying to put together this episode. And how. It's been quite a chore. <laughs> so the various pieces of the puzzle, we keep trying to play with them, but they're so scattered all over the place. It's really hard to assemble in a cohesive manner that I think that our listeners could easily appreciate. Well, but like Christensen says, the individual episodes are brilliant and they're often quite fun. So we just couldn't resist the urge to tackle this saga, uh, even though it's only our second saga for the podcast. Yeah, we're gluttons for punishment, aren't we? Indeed. Uh, So here's what we've done to try to address the difficulty of this saga's narrative structure. Rather than take you through the saga chronologically, 
we've decided to break it into sections according to the individual episodes that we find most compelling. But no worries for those of you who love this saga. We are going to cover almost everything, including jealous witches and a possessed bull. But we're going to try to make it all... And ghost seals. And, oh, yes. <laughs> it's just the head of a ghost seal. <laughs> Well. But we're going to try to make it all the more accessible for those of you who haven't read the saga. <laughs> because of the amount of material we've got to cover, we decided to split this episode in two. We'll do the summary here and then move into the evaluation and discussion in part B of our episode. All right, so let's get started. Uh, we'll begin by talking about the settlement and the start of conflict within the region in a section we call... Thor's Nessings versus Kjallaklings. Our saga begins with a conflict among three groups, all settled on Snaffelsnest Peninsula. The Thorsnessings, the Kjallaklings, and the Air Dwellers. Now, I'll start with the Thorsnessings. They're established by a guy named Thorolf Mosterbeard. They are devoted to Thor, to the extent of dedicating their land and a mountain to him. Uh, this mountain is called Helgafell, and Thorolf sets a policy that no one may relieve himself anywhere on Helgafell. He instead establishes a sort of outhouse offshore on a large rock that he calls Dritskare. To be family-friendly, I guess we'll translate this as poop rock. Right. Let's do this very maturely. <laughs> no one questions this policy, <laughs> at least in Mosterbeard's lifetime. Right. Now, the Kjallaklings are established by Bjorn the Easterner, who's actually a friend of Mosterbeard's. The uh, Kjallakling name comes from Bjorn's son, Kjallak the Old. The descendants of Bjorn and Kjallak are numerous, and once Bjorn and Thorolf have passed away the Kjallaklings start pushing back against the dominance of the Thorsnessings. The trouble starts when several Kjallaklings, led by Thorgrim Kjallakson, announce that they no longer intend to honor Thorolf's ban on relieving oneself at Helgafell Ugh. and will no longer make the hike to Dritskær whenever they feel the urge. Uh, you know, I sympathize with them. Well, as, a, as a weak-bladdered man. Certainly you can see their point. So, Mosterbeard's son's name is Thorstein Codbiter. He hears about this defiance and then gathers up his men and various supporters, and he prepares them for a showdown with the Kjallaklings. Now, things are really complicated by the third settlement group in the region. They're a group of families who settle further inland. The most prominent group among them are the family of Thorolf Twistfoot, but there are several others as well. Twistfoot is among the Thorsnessing supporters at this point, but several others support the Kjallaklings. Right, so we've got three kin groups now jockeying for position on the peninsula. Twistfoot's a devious figure, but for now he's playing the good thing man, and with his family's support, the Thorsnessings are the larger force. There's a pitched battle up and down the mountain, and when the two sides separate, there have been multiple deaths on each side. A respected man named Thord Yeller is called in to mediate, and he constructs a complicated settlement that ends the violence for a while. In the long run, as we'll see, it's not a successful settlement, partly because he puts both families in joint control of the local assembly, where they're sure to continue butting heads. So the tensions that are started over where to go to the bathroom in Helgafell um, kind of plague this generation and extend into the next. Uh, there's going to be a lot of blood spilled over this uh, toilet issue. <laughs> not really, though. They're not arguing about the toilet anymore. It's really about power, right? Right. Right, no, fair enough. So whether it's about where you go to the bathroom or who has the most power in the district, we're going to see these tensions erupt into some violence in this next section. Snorri versus Arnkel Thorolfsson. At this point, the saga looks forward to the second generation of Icelanders, the majority of whom are born in Iceland and consider it their native land. Now, there are a lot of characters introduced by the saga author at this point, but there are two men who rise to the top of the heap right away. Their names are worth remembering because the central plot of Erbigia Saga, if it can be said to have one at all, is the story of Snorri the Gothi and his rival 
Arnkel Thorolfsson. I'm not sure I really like saying there's a central plot to this one. It, it, I think it might be better to say that Snorri and Arnkel are involved, either directly or indirectly, with almost all the action of the saga. Okay, right. So they may or may not be the central figures of the saga, John, but we can at least say that they tie the whole thing together, right? Agreed. I mean, there are very few episodes in Erebidja that, that don't feature either Snorri or Arnkel in some capacity. So like I said, they're just the central figures. Sigh. If you insist. <laughs> I don't insist strongly, but we're going to work with this model, okay? It Fine. holds us together. Fine. Uh, why don't I begin by talking a little bit about Arnkel, since I know you're going to want to handle the Snorri side of things. That's, that's fine with me. You know I want to be his representative. Okay. Uh, so Arnkel's story is tied up with that of his father, Thorolf Twistfoot. So we should probably start there. Yeah. We did mention him as one of the participants in the Battle of uh, Dritskar or Puprock, but you might have missed it. He's definitely worth mentioning again. He'll be showing up quite a bit through the podcast, actually, because uh, he's at the center of a lot of the mischief that goes on. Uh, for now, we'll mention that he's introduced in the saga as the son of a really nice woman named Girid. Uh, there's actually a little uh, interesting little aside about her when she's introduced that says she built a great hall right across the main road. Now, that seems kind of inconvenient and uh, arrogant, but she keeps a table full of food inside, and she welcomes all travelers to refresh themselves at this buffet and take a meal as they pass through. And this is Thorolf Twistfoot's mother we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. What went wrong with his childhood that turned him into such a terrible person? Not enough hugs, I think. But it's a remarkable contrast. <laughs> it really is. So different. Thorolf Twistfoot is the kind of guy you don't want to run into in a dark alley. Not that Iceland has a lot of dark alleys at this point in history. <laughs> no, he introduced no. as a great Viking and a very harsh man, which of course is not an unusual descriptor in the sagas. No. But he's also pretty relentless. Um, his son Arnkel, on the other hand, has much more of his grandmother in him than his father. Yeah, though I definitely like Snorri better, I have to admit that Arnkel is a pretty nice guy. He really is, and he shows it over and over again in the saga, which is more than some might say for Snorri. Uh, don't judge him too quickly, John. You know that I love him. We're going to cover all of that soon enough, but your job, talk about Arnkel, not Snorri. Fine. Fine. Uh, so Arnkel is described as a big, strong fellow, clever at law and very shrewd. He was a great-hearted man and stood head and shoulders above all the other men in the district both in popularity and strength of character. He's also a temple priest, which uh, gave him some bit of support in the district. Yeah, that description's pretty hard to beat, actually. It's actually really unusual to see an author make a direct statement about an individual's character in the sagas. It really is, and Snorri doesn't come off quite as well in the author's introduction either. No, I mean, he's not irredeemable. No, not at all. Uh, let's start Snorri's portrait by acknowledging that Snorri's not his real name. He's mm -hmm. actually Thorgrim Thorgrimson. He's given that nickname Snorri because, as the author puts it, he was a very difficult child. And this earns him the nickname Snerir, which means... He's kind of a difficult adult. It earns him the nickname Snerir, which means turbulent or warlike. And this nickname evolves into Snorri, which means basically the same thing. And this is what he's called for the rest of his life. And, of course, it's also the name of our favorite Sturluson. Are we already staking claims on our favorite Sturlusons? What if I'm partial to, like, Sturla or Siegfat? You can have them. <laughs> I'll take him. I was merely pointing out that Snorri Sturluson, the infamous Snorri Sturluson's name, has its start right here in the saga. Oh, that's true. Well, in that case, yes. Uh, now, the story of Snorri's birth is a little bit tragic. It is. His father, uh, Thorgrim the Priest, is caught up in a feud and ends up being killed by his own brother-in-law, Gisli Sursen. Yeah, all this happens just a few days before Snorri's born, so too bad for Snorri. His mother then marries his father's brother, Bork the Stout, and Snorri is sent off to be fostered by a man named Thorbrand, who's actually the brother of the man Thorolf Twistfoot kills in a duel to take his land. So, 
There's a little bit of animosity there from the start, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, as you can, if you follow that sentence, you know that it's a little bit complicated right there. <laughs> so, the saga author, though, it doesn't bring it up at all. Well, it's pretty typical of the sagas. I mean, they like to use genealogies and these little details about relationships in one chapter, and they expect you to apply that information to later episodes yourself. Yeah, it's one of the things that makes the saga so much fun to read over and over again. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> so, we do get a brief description of Snorri, but it's nowhere near as glowing as Arnkel's. The author says, Snorri was of medium height and rather slight build, a handsome, regular-featured man with a fair complexion, flaxen hair, and a reddish beard. He was usually even-tempered, and it was hard to tell whether he was pleased or not. He was a very shrewd man with unusual foresight, a long memory, and a taste for vengeance. To his friends he gave good counsel, but his enemies learned to fear the advice he gave. The author also notes that he was a temple priest like Arnkel and became a great man of power and... For that, some people envied him. Well, it's not a negative portrait, although that taste for vengeance uh, leads you to wonder a little bit. You know, and also the uh, he gave his good friends counsel, but his enemies learned to fear him. That's mm-hmm. similar to what we saw in Hrovenkel, but uh, Right, absolutely, absolutely. This is no Hrovenkel. Right. He, either way, he's definitely different from Arnkel, and I think that's the point, is we're contrasting two different kinds of chieftains. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things the author emphasizes is Snorri's shrewdness and foresight. So if we compare Arnkel to Snorri in terms of their behavior in the saga, I think we can argue that Arnkel's general kindness, it often puts him at a disadvantage. But by playing things close to the chest and not shying away from violence, Snorri's, he's usually ready to exploit a situation to his own advantage. Right, but this is kind of the issue. I mean, which which sort of guy do you want leading your district? Well, you know who I want, but we're going to have to address that in the evaluation section. I really can't imagine any other characters being able to compete with them for the title of Thingman. We'll see. Uh, But for now, we'll return to the character analysis. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. So let's speed things up a little bit. Snorri and Arnkel both use their best attributes to become the leading men of the region. There's some jealousies and animosities. Some of them held over from the aftermath of the Battle of Puprock. But more often than not, people who have problems with each other in the district will choose to seek out either Snorri or Arnkel for help. Yeah, and this is really the appropriate action for the social-political structure of medieval Iceland. It's the go-the-thing-men relationship playing out just as it was meant to. Exactly. And this saga touches on so many of the complexities of those relationships because it's never an easy decision for either of them to get involved in conflicts that aren't their own. Yeah, what's especially interesting for me is that this saga looks at how Gothar work in their regions, or I don't know, maybe it would be better to say it shows us how they work their regions. At least for Snorri, anyway. Yeah. He's always using the conflicts of others for his own gains. It's sort of well, his defining characteristic. Well, it's not like Arnkel doesn't, but he does tend to be put in positions of acting on others' behalfs more often than Snorri does. Snorri tends to be one of those shadow lurkers who likes to pull people aside and give them helpful advice. But when mm-hmm. he's not lurking in the shadows, he's organizing raiding parties to go and kill his enemies. Yeah, but for all his cunning, he doesn't really end up being the most successful participant in Icelandic legal culture. <laughs> no, he doesn't. But that's where the raiding parties and killing your enemies comes in. Right, it right. It's a useful backup plan. <laughs> but in the legal cases, Arnkel almost always comes out on, on top. True. Uh, but of course, as, as you're undoubtedly going to show us, Snorri isn't the kind of guy to take that lying down. No, sir. Now, the first real conflict that pits them against each other is the battle over some lost horses at Thorin the Black's house. Now, this is a great scene, and we'll get into it in more detail in our judgment sections. Yeah, for now, we should just say that Thorin gets himself into some trouble, in large part because he's tired of being called a woman by his mother, Gerrit. Right, now, Gerrit is Thorolf Twistfoot's second daughter, and it seems she inherited some of his nastiness. Yeah, and she's also a witch, so there's that. Anyway, so Thorin gets into a fight with Thorbjorn the Stout. 
Thorin's wife loses her hand trying to break it up, and Thorbjorn winds mm. up with his head split in two. Now, Thorin's pretty proud of himself for that, but he later begins to regret getting involved because he soon realizes that he's just killed Snorri the Goathe's brother-in-law. Uh, which is not a good idea, but fortunately no. for Thorin, his uncle is the influential Arnkel. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where we see Arnkel's shrewdness in action. He realizes that Thorin will lose pretty much everything he owns in a court settlement, and then he'll be outlawed on top of that. So rather than go to court, Arnkel advises Thorin to use all his money and his household and get away from Iceland before the case is finished. It's really good advice, but Snorri's no dummy. He anticipates something like this is going to happen. And so we get this great scene of him rushing with his men over hill and dale as they try to get over to well, the... More uh, like hill and fjord, really. Hill and fjord, yeah. So since this is Iceland, he rushes with his men over hill and fjord to, uh, to intercept Thorin before he leaves. Now, while they don't find Thorin, they do find his boat, which they promptly destroy. Well, I'm, I suppose who can blame them? But right. Arnkel works out another arrangement for his nephew... And soon Thorin is overseas, out of Snorri's grasp, and as of course we're told, out of the saga. That's right. But from this moment forward, Snorri's got a pretty good reason to dislike Arnkel. And as the saga progresses, we find that competition for resources and influence and power between the two, that competition heats up considerably. Right. The next thing that happens is that there's an attempt on Snorri's life by one of his neighbors named Vigfus. But Snorri is able to avert disaster and gets his revenge by killing Vigfus. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Vigfus' widow isn't too happy about this, but she can't seem to convince anyone to help her prosecute Snorri for the killing. Oh, not even the generous and kind Arnkel? Not initially. Uh, Remember, he's already on Snorri's bad side, um, and he doesn't need it to get worse, especially since he knows Vigfus was in the wrong and tried to have Snorri killed first. Yeah, so then why does Arnkel get involved? He's not even related to Vigfus. Well, he's not related to Vigfus, but he's the uncle of Vigfus' widow Thorgerd. So when she digs up Vigfus's body and throws the severed head of her late husband in Arnkel's face, wow. he's really in an awkward position. Yeah, that's one great way to get your uncle involved. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty effective. It's <laughs> disgusting, but effective. So Arnkel does bring the suit against Snorri, although he sort of warns in advance that he thinks nothing good will come of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sure enough, he's not able to achieve full outlawry. Uh, Snorri merely has to pay a large fine, and Snorri's uncle, Mar, receives a sentence of lesser outlawry. Yeah. So let's return to Thorolf Twistfoot, our good friend. He's still out there. Your friend, not mine. <laughs> no, I don't. No, you can have him. He's he's out there, but he's still causing trouble. He gets involved in a dispute with his neighbor named Ulfar, and I, I find this whole dispute pretty funny. Really? <laughs> well, I'm not sure Ulfar would find it that funny. <laughs> Definitely not. He ends up dead. Uh, he steals Ulfar's hay, and <laughs> well, right, and then tries to set his house on fire for no reason at all. Right. Like I said, he's not a nice guy. He's not actually the guy, though, that does the deed. He gets a group of slaves to go and do it for him. And they kind of get caught in the act by Arnkel, and he takes them away and puts them to death. Right. Sad for them. Yeah, sad but, for But, I mean, them. there are a lot of cases in this saga where slaves are promised their freedom if they go and do something terrible. In every yeah. case, they screw it up. Yeah, they do. It's really a kind of a lesson, I guess, that the author's trying to get across. Don't trust slaves to do your dirty work. Well, of course, this is the real beginning of the end for Arnkel. Because it's going to set up a more direct conflict between him and Snorri. Uh, immediately, two things happen as a result of the arson. Or the attempted arson, I should say. Uh, Ulfar is so freaked out by Thorolf's aggression that he signs his property over to Arnkel and enters under his protection. Uh, Thorolf is so upset that Arnkel in- interrupted what was otherwise going to be a beautiful fire that he wants to prosecute his own son for the Wergild value of his slaves. Uh, naturally, Arnkel refuses to pay... 
uh, because the slaves were caught in the act of the crime. And Thorolf is so unreasonable at this point that he goes and promises a large woodland territory to Snorri Gothi, of all people. And he says, just prosecute Arnkel for the murder of the slaves and get him outlawed or something, and I'll, I'll give <laughs> you this, this territory. It, it's pretty ridiculous, really. <laughs> it is. It's so sad. So sad for Arnkel, his own father's turn on him like this. Uh-huh. And, but Snorri knows all of this. He knows it's right. Ridiculous. He knows not to get in, right. He doesn't want to be involved here. But Thorolf's no dummy. He's dangling this woodland in front of him like bait. And mm-hmm. Snorri, Snorri is a man who likes to line his pockets. So he can't help but bite on this. Right. And, of course, unfortunately for Thorolf, the results of the case are unimpressive. Arnkel mm-hmm. has to pay a small fine uh, based on a technicality uh, of where he put the slaves to death. But it's hardly the kind of humiliating defeat that Thorolf wanted for his son. True, true. But Snorri doesn't really care about that. He got himself that sweet little forest, and he can harvest all the wood he wants. Right. But now here's the problem. Arnkel wants that forest too, and he still considers it to be family property. Mm-hmm. So after Thorolf Twistfoot dies, and we'll talk about that a bit later, uh, Arnkel begins the process of asserting his ownership of the Krakenes woods by attacking a group of Snorri's slaves for collecting the lumber. Arnkel kills one man, which is Snorri's friend Hauk, and chases the slaves away before taking the timber back to his own farm. Yeah, and this brings the previously dormant animosities that had been accumulating between Snorri and Arnkel right to the surface. This isn't the kind of thing that Snorri's going to take lightly. Well, it's also not something he acts very quickly on. No, that's true. Uh, he does send an assassin over to Arnkel's property, but that kind of fails, and Arnkel kills that Again. guy with an, Yeah, he kills him with uh, an adze, which is kind of cool. Right, as Snorri finally realizes, if you want somebody dead, you got to do it yourself. Yeah, but he doesn't fully act on that until his own thingmen are starting to talk at a feast that he himself throws. They start talking about who's the best chieftain in the neighborhood, and mm-hmm. they some of them conclude that it's Arnkel. Now, well, and partially this, because he stood up to Snorri and gotten the better of him. Yeah, many times at this point. So this is the moment when Snorri realizes that he's got no choice, right? Arnkel has to go because Snorri's reputation is being affected by Arnkel's mm-hmm. reputation. He can't afford to start losing Thingmen to Arnkel. No. Now, this sets up a really brilliant scene in which Arnkel finds himself all alone in a field with nothing but a sled runner to defend himself. And the way this works is that while stacking hay in the field, Arnkel spots Snorri coming with 14 other men. Now, among those are his foster brothers, the Thorbransons. We'll see them again later on. Arnkel sends his slaves home to get help, and then begins setting up what defense he can. He uses a nearby haystack and a turf wall to establish a defensive position. And he doesn't have a weapon, but he tears the runner off of his sled, climbs up on the haystack, and prepares to defend himself. And what follows is the sort of amazing feat of hopeless heroism. Uh, Arnkel's runner does eventually break on the frozen turf sods, and he's overwhelmed by his attackers after dealing numerous injuries. Snorri and his men cover Arnkel's body with hay, and then return to Helgefell. Yeah, and the author pauses at this moment to just remind us how wonderful old Arnkel was. Yeah, he gives him the sort of encomium. Uh, he says, Arnkel was mourned by everyone, for of all men in pagan times, he was the most gifted. He was remarkably shrewd in judgment, good-tempered, kind-hearted, brave, honest, and moderate. He came out on top in every lawsuit, no matter with whom he had to deal dig at Snorri there, mm-hmm. which explains why people were so envious of him, <clears throat> as is shown by the way he met his death. <laughs> well, that's that's all well and good. That's fine. The, you know, I hadn't really realized before reading it just now just how much contempt for Snorri there is in that moment. Yeah, but 
you know, Snorri's not that bad, and I don't think that he comes off bad in the rest of the saga, and maybe that's where I start to like him a little bit better, <laughs> is after this moment. So, mm-hmm. Arnkel is a wonderful guy, but he's dead, and Snorri's now <laughs> the most That's your argument? Man. Yeah. He loses. <laughs> he's, he's dead, so Snorri's better. Yeah. Snorri's the most powerful man in the district now, so everyone's going to turn to him for help, and you know what, John? He's very good at his job. Well, and we're going to see that later on. Yeah. Snorri versus Bjorn the Brethovic champion. While Snorri is dealing with Arnkel, he also has another problem brewing. Snorri arranged a new marriage for his sister Thurid after her first husband was killed. Now, her new husband is a well-regarded man named Thorod Tribute Trader. That's a lovely nickname for him. Hmm. Uh, the problem for Thorod Tribute Trader and for Snorri, actually, is that Thurid is fooling around on the side with a man named Bjorn the Bredevik champion. Thorod kind of makes a clumsy attempt at killing Bjorn, but Bjorn is the Bredevik champion. He's quite handsome and good with a sword. So Bjorn kills two of Thorod's men and escapes. Snorri steps in and manages to win a sentence of minor outlawry against Bjorn, so he's out of the way for a few years, and Snorri turns his attentions back to Arnkel. Right. Later, Bjorn returns from outlawry, but while he's been gone, his old flame Thurid, who is still married to Thorod the Tribute Trader, has given birth to a boy named Kjartan. Now, everybody notices that Kjartan looks an awful lot like Bjorn. Suspicious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Thurid's husband, Thorod, notices this, too. <laughs> and so he makes another attempt to kill Bjorn. Why wouldn't he? This time by paying a woman named Thordrum a witch face to magic up a blizzard that catches Bjorn out in the if open. If you're going to try to make a blizzard, you've got to contact Thorgrim a witch face. Well, absolutely. <laughs> For no other reason than so that you can write an envelope address to Thorgrim a witch face. <laughs> Uh, Bjorn barely survives the blizzard, and he spends months at home recovering his health. And then later on, after resolving most of the local tensions, Snorri, he begins making plans to deal with this troublesome Bjorn and his attentions to his sister. So he rides with several men in the hope of catching Bjorn alone in the fields, and indeed he finds Bjorn kind of stacking hay, if I remember. Snorri rides mm-hmm. in wearing a the blue cloak, which is, as you will come to know through this podcast, saga shorthand for someone setting out on a killing. Bjorn's alone, and apart from a knife he'd been using, he's unarmed. And when he sees the group of men coming, he turns the tables by walking right up to Snorri, grabbing the blue cloak, and holding the point of the knife at Snorri's chest. And what follows is just a fantastic bit of Icelandic one-upsmanship, as both Bjorn and Snorri attempt to outcool each other. They calmly exchange greetings and ask the news, without either one of them acknowledging the standoff that they've just engaged in. Now, eventually, the conversation sort of naturally turns to Bjorn's relationship with Thurid, and both men agree that it's best if Bjorn leaves Iceland again. And once that's agreed, the two men step back from another, one another, and they walk away. And Bjorn is as good as his word. He does indeed. He leaves Iceland the next day, and for a long time, no one knows where he's gone yeah, to. But we do see him again, don't we? Yeah, at the very, very end of the saga... A legend is recounted of an Icelandic trading vessel which runs aground in an unidentified foreign land. The sailors meet a gray-haired old warrior who holds a position of authority among the otherwise hostile natives, and this old man intervenes to let the sailors escape. But before they go, he questions them closely about the people of Snaffelsness, especially Thurid and her son Kjartan. And it becomes clear, although it's never explicitly stated, that the old man is actually Bjorn, the Bredevik champion, who's still alive but never to return to Iceland. Uh, and, and what is this foreign land, do you think, John? Um, there's some question about that. I mean, it's uh, the description of the natives suggests to me that it could possibly be um, either something in 
uh, the North Atlantic, uh, possibly Greenland, or possibly even uh, what they call Vinland, uh, North America. So uh, let's go on to our next category, which is going to look at... uh, The Thorbransons versus the Thorlaxons. Now, Snorri Gothi's greatest talent is probably his ability to work through others. I mean, that's one of the things that I think frustrates the critics is that he never does stuff himself. Mm -hmm. He kind of has other people doing it for him. Right, he's so rarely at the head of the attacking force. Right. But uh, he's sort of he has in there somewhere. no more willing cat's paw in this saga than the Thorbrinsons. Snorri is the foster brother to the Thorbrinsons, and he uses that relationship to draw them into conflicts that he'd rather not deal with on his own. If you remember, they're very instrumental in his plan to eliminate Arnkel Thorolfsson. Right, and in the later episodes of the saga, Snorri and the Thorbrinsons find themselves in a showdown with a Calicling family, the Thorlaxons. The two sides come to blows over a failed attempt by the eldest Thorbranson to marry the sister of the Thorlaxons. And then in a pair of battles, the two sides essentially fight to a draw. Uh, in the first battle, at Altafjord, seven men are killed, and Snorri's young son is badly wounded. And during this fight, there's actually a bit of dark humor concerning the complexities of feud culture. One of the battle's participants is Killerstuer, who's Snorri's father-in-law, but also a cousin to the Thorlaxons. Killerstuer fights on the side of the Thorlaxons, and he's the first one to make a kill. But Snorri then, in mid-fight, sort of stops and confronts him, gives him a guilt trip for fighting on the side of men who have wounded his own grandson. Stuer spins about, and with equal enthusiasm, kills a man on the Thorlaxon side. Later, when the inevitable lawsuits are brought, Stuer's two killings are said to offset one another, and so no compensation is paid for either one. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, so the two sides separate, but they're not done with each other yet. Yeah, that's right, because by winter, they're already fighting again. So mm-hmm. it's a, a brilliant scene in saga literature where you've got a battle in the ice. Um, it's going to be very slippery. This time they're going to meet as uh, they're crossing a slippery ice field near an ice-covered rock formation. So there's ice everywhere. Both sides are having trouble keeping their footing, and there are a number of near misses with real vivid descriptions of men slithering down the rocks, falling on the ice, all the while they're locked in battle. And when the fight's eventually over, one brother's killed on each side, but both sides are decimated by injuries. It's pretty gruesome. Mm. The Thorbrinsons are especially badly off. One of the brothers loses a leg, and another has an arrow through his mouth. Uh, a third of them suffers spear wounds through his leg and neck. And the two sides are finally reconciled through a complicated legal settlement orchestrated by Killer Stuart's brother, Vermund the Slender. And... Snorri and the Thorlaxons maintain peace between their families for the rest of their lives. And years later, when Killer Stuart is killed, Snorri travels with a band of men to take compensation or to get revenge for the death, and the leading men of the Thorsnessings, the Kjallaklings, and the Air Dwellers ride in support of his claim. So at this point, the shakeup of the peninsula is complete, and Snorri is definitely the top man in the new order of the region. Like I said, he's our hero, isn't he? Osbak, the outlaw. The later action of the saga features Snorri coming to grips with a new enemy. This time it's an outsider who threatens to destabilize the hard-won peace in the region. This is Snorri's hard-won peace, I would add. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, so give him credit. A raider right. named Osbak. Now this is, but this is a later Snorri. This is this is you know, a later Snorri, Snorri as a mature man. Yes, I was going to say ma- that red Snorri. beard that we heard about earlier is flecked with gray now. <laughs> So there's this raider named Osback who begins bullying and thieving in the area with 
a really fast-growing band of outlaws and marauders. I mean, they're essentially kind of land-based Vikings, and they attack and plunder a lot of farmsteads in the area. Yeah, I mean, everybody gets worried about these guys. Um, but two men in particular have a lot of trouble with Osbeck. Alf the Short, one of Snorri Gothi's thingmen, and Thorir Goldharderson, who's a leading man in the local community. Uh, one day, uh, Thorir and Alf set out with their men to carve up a beached whale. I love this scene, and it's a great example of the right to driftage that was so important to the Icelanders. Yeah, I mean, a windfall like a beached whale was a really important addition to an Icelandic coastal farmer's resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that washed up on shore is useful. But whales in particular were prized for their meat and their fat. So while the men are carving up the whale, Osbach arrives at the carcass with 15 armed men. He, uh, he knocks Thor or Gold Hardison out with the blunt end of his axe, scares Alf the Short into submission, and runs away with the best part of the whale meat. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, Ospec's not done with those two, though. He, he then goes to uh, Alf's farm and raids it. And then he attacks more of Thor's men. Now, Snorri Gothi, who's well-established by now and is the keeper of the peace in the whole region. Yes, he's gonna, yes. He's going to bring a lawsuit. And he has Ospec and his men outlawed. But they just go on the move and avoid Snorri and continue raiding. I really get the sense in this section of the saga that we're seeing like a new kind of disregard for the law. Yeah. There's a real kind of anxiety about the fragile nature of legal power. Mm-hmm. A man like Osbach can simply thumb his nose at outlawry, and that means that the law is seen to be powerless. Yeah, and what's needed here, John, is a leader. Ugh. What we need is we need a man who can organize the community and take out the trash. We need a man like Snorri the Gothi. I cannot wait to outlawry section this guy no way <laughs> no you would never do that all right i have to say all right fine so we need a man like snorri Gothi, but he mm-hmm. takes his time about doing anything about he it. he always does he's well, thoughtful right, right. He's very so thoughtful. that winter while snorri is still thinking about his response osbach's raiding party attacks thor gold hardison's farm drags him from his bed and kills him it happens that same night they attack alf's farm but alf hears them coming and flees so the outlaw band by now it's grown it includes dozens of men and he's also got, as his lieutenant, a notorious Viking named Hraven. And this large group now retreats to a fortified farmstead. Yeah. Now, once Snorri gets word of what's happening, he is going to leap into action. He's going to raise... <laughs> no, leap is really the right word after several yeah. months' delay. He's going to shamble... No. Saunter into action. You're making him sound bad. I don't, I don't know if I agree with all this. So Snorri... Noisy into action. <laughs> no, he, he found out that Alf was killed and he says, I got to defend him. No, so Snorri... Is going to raise a troop of 80 men to deal with Osbach. Is that enough? We'll see. Yeah. They besiege the outlaw's fort, and in a long fight, many men are wounded, and three, including both Osbach and Raven, are killed. Now, Snorri's able to disperse the remainder of the outlaw band, and the threat is lifted. Now, incidentally, uh, Osbach's family continues to sow discord in future sagas. His grandson appears in Bandamana saga as an untrustworthy man who steals and kills the justification. Mm-hmm. So the, fe- the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Now, for Snorri's part, the harrying out of Osbeck is his opportunity to prove his worth as a powerful chieftain. In some ways, uh, his total dominance at the end of this saga anticipates the Storgothar, including his descendants, yeah. uh, who eventually come to control Iceland by the time mm-hmm. of the 13th century and the time of the capitulation. That's right. The Supernatural. All right, so no discussion of Erbigi saga would be complete without some attention to the supernatural. It's really what the saga's known for. 
which some might say is a tragedy. Some like you, for example. <laughs> yes, some some like me. I'm really just more interested in the political side of the story, but I do have to admit that the many witches, hauntings, and supernatural events in this saga, they, they are a real highlight. Yeah, I mean, uh, our first example comes really early in the saga when we're told that Thorstein, the first Thorstein codbiter had gone to Hoskold Island to fetch provisions for the winter. Right. One evening while he's away, his shepherd was tending sheep up near Helgafell when all of a sudden he sees the mountain open up on the north side. There are great fires burning inside it and the noise of men feasting. When he listens more closely, he learns that Thorstein Codbiter and his crew are being welcomed into the mountain. And the morning after this, we learn that Thorstein's ship sunk while on a fishing trip. It's a great moment, and it really lends this kind of magical feel to an otherwise... It's kind of like a straightforward chronicle-style narrative. Well, but that's only the beginning. Not only do we have dead men walking into mountains, we get witches conjuring blizzards, blood rain, violent spirits attacking innocent men, animals going crazy near burial grounds, birds falling out of the sky, seal heads popping out of the floor, ghosts walking (laughs) around the living, bands of ghosts getting into fights with each other and then sitting down around a fire, and we've even got a demonically possessed bull. Oh, it's brilliant stuff. It's it's really amazing when you start thinking of how much craziness goes on in this saga. I know. And most of these episodes are interspersed throughout the saga. They often interrupt the development of the family tensions between Arnkel and Snorri. True, but uh, Arnkel and Snorri aren't free from it all. No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, uh, Arnkel's father, Thorolf Twistfoot, is the source of some pretty strange stuff. If you remember, Thorolf had given Snorri the Krakenes Woods as a bribe to get him to prosecute Arnkel. When he's frustrated by the paltry penalty Snorri achieves for Arnkel... Thorolf tries to get the wood back, and Snorri tells him to bug off. Right, but Snorolf then has the nerve to go back to Arnkel and ask him for help. Uh, Thorolf's completely mad, John. He really is. Uh, obviously, Arnkel tells his father there's no way he's taking on this problem, uh, which is about all that Thorolf can take. He goes home in a rage, sits down on the high seat of his hall. He ignores everyone all night and stays in his seat even when everyone else goes to bed. When the household wakes up, they find him still sitting there, stone dead. He probably died of some kind of apoplectic fit. Yeah, it's really the perfect ending to his life. Oh, but he's not done yet. It gets better. (laughs) When they try to move his body, they find that it's... And by the way, a special kind of evil that dying is only the beginning of your evil doing. (laughs) Right. Uh, They find that the body has grown so heavy when they try to move it that they can't. They have to knock the back wall of the hall out and drag him away with a yoke of oxen. Everyone's hoping that burying the old bully will be enough. Thorolf isn't done terrorizing the district just yet. No, no, not by a long shot. There's like a whole chapter devoted to the strange things that start happening after his death. The oxen that pulled him are ridden to death one night by demons. And every beast that comes near his grave goes out of its mind and howls itself to death. Don't forget the shepherd. There's a poor shepherd whose coal-black corpse is found not far from Thorolf's grave with every bone in his body broken. Yeah, it just gets worse and worse. Things get so bad that Arnkel is forced to go and dig up his father, drag him farther away, and rebury him. And it takes a team of oxen and 11 men to get the job done. Right, but the oxen then go crazy, break loose, and run themselves to death. What is with Thorolf and these oxen? He's got a thing for them. He's not done with them yet either. No, no. Uh, After Arnkel buries his father again, he builds a wall across the knoll right behind the grave to protect the district from his ghost. The wall is actually built so high that only a bird in flight can get over it. Yeah, and so ends Thorolf's reign of terror. Right, John? No, 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 only for a while. <laughs> He's quiet as long as Arnkel is alive, which, of course, thanks to Snorri, isn't all that long. Yeah, not really, because Arnkel, at this moment, kind of starts his quest to reclaim the Krakenes woods from Snorri. Right. 
So near the end of the saga, we hear about Thoral's return. His hauntings are so terrible that the farmsteads he haunts are soon abandoned. Yeah, it's almost like he's continuing this line of work that he had started in life. Absolutely right. Uh, and most of what he does at this point is claim land through violence, right? which is, again, essentially what he did when he was alive. Mm-hmm. He's so awful that the people of the district resolve to dig him up again and this time burn his body. <laughs> right, third time's a charm. Yeah, this proves to be a terrible mistake, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, his ashes just get everywhere. This, <laughs> this shouldn't be a problem, uh, but there's a cow who grazes in the area and ends up licking the stones where the ashes had settled. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a bad thing really, though, does it? Ah, uh, but what if I tell you that they later learn the cow is pregnant? <laughs> uh, no, I'll say that's unremarkable. Cows get pregnant all the time. No, 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 no. <laughs> there are no bulls in the area. Uh, that does sound a bit odd. It is odd. Uh, yeah. And so is the huge bull calf that she gives birth to. <laughs> Old Thoroff chose to come back as a calf. Is that what you're implying? It, it, it does appear that way. It's an odd <laughs> choice, but metaphorically potent. Indeed, indeed. Uh, the cow is just as bad as Thorolf, uh, and this old woman recognizes the problem right away. She begs for someone to kill the calf before trouble starts, but no one takes her seriously. Thorolf twist cow, for lack of a better term, <laughs> grows bigger and bigger, and they eventually name him Glacier. He proves to be really stubborn and even violent. Wow, what a surprise. How unlike yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, before long, he starts causing trouble. One day, his owner, Thorod, hears that Glacier is running around, tearing up all the haystacks and scattering them around. When Thorod tries to tame him, Glossier charges. They wrestle a bit, but Glossier's no dummy. He gets his head down and tosses Thorod into the air. And when he comes down, Thorod takes a horn through the stomach and dies from the wound. Sad story. And so where does old Thorolf Twiskow, a.k.a. Glossier, end up? Uh, well, the men chase him away with spears, and he sinks into a swamp. And he's never heard from again. Well, that's a relief. Now, the other bit of supernatural goodness in the saga is the hauntings of Fraud River. Yeah, there's some really good stuff there. Yeah, it all comes about because of some fine linens. That doesn't actually make any sense when you say it that way, even though it's true. Yeah, Uh, the saga tells of this Christian woman uh, from the Hebrides whose name is Thorgana. She comes to Iceland one day with a big chest full of fine English linens, and she starts flaunting these around and... It catches the eye of Thurid, who's Bjorn the Bredevik champion's lady. And more importantly, Thorod, tribute trader's wife, let's not forget. Well, he's kind of forgettable, but yes, Thorod's <laughs> wife. So Thorguna is invited to stay with Thorod and Thurid quite conveniently, and she soon finds herself on her deathbed after a blood rain well, soaks her. Beautifully laid out deathbed. Yes. Nothing but the finest for old Thorguna. Now, before she dies, she tells Thorod that he and Thorod can go through all of her belongings and take whatever they want, but all the fine linens should be burned, Mm. along with her fancy bed and all the furnishings. So, all the things that Thorod wants, in essence. Yeah, pretty much. She makes Thorod swear that he's going to do it, and he tells him that if he breaks his oath, she promises that great trouble will begin. She says, I don't want to be held responsible for what will happen. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that Thorod is pretty weak-willed. Even though he promises Thorgunna that he'll burn everything, once Thorid finds out, he gives in pretty quickly when she starts begging him not to do it. Yeah, I mean, it was already pretty clear that Thorid has Thorod under control. Note that whole affair with Bjorn Bredevik Champion and having his child thing seems to be more or less forgotten at this point. Yeah. This is just more evidence that she's got Thorod wrapped around her finger. Right. So, just like Thorgunna promised, bad things do start happening. Yeah. Um, Thorid unleashes a hellish series of hauntings that terrify the neighborhood. They cause the deaths of more than 20 people. Uh, Among the dead are Thorir Woodleg, his wife, Thorgrima Witchface, and Thorod Tributrader himself. Yeah, it's so sad to lose someone named Thorgrima Witchface. Agreed. Yeah. So, 
he should have listened to Thorgunna and burned the bedclothes, right? Well, it's his own fault. Uh, Thurid, the one who's actually responsible for the mess, just gets sick, but eventually she's on her own deathbed. Now, Kjartan, Thurid's son, is desperate and asks his uncle Snorri for advice. Per Snorri's orders, he then burns the bedclothes to dispel the malign influences over the household. But by this time, there's a new problem. Two bands of undead men have taken over the house, one led by the corpse of Thorod and one by the corpse of his friend Thorir Woodleg. The two groups spend their evenings throwing clods of dirt at one another and hogging the best spots by the fire. (laughs) Kjartan solves this in fine Icelandic fashion by suing them. He announces summonses against the undead trespassers and evicts them one by one, finally bringing the nightmare to an end and narrowly saving his mother's life. Yeah. How else do you get rid of some ghosts? Yeah, exactly. It's noteworthy. It takes the son of Bjorn the Bredevik champion to set things right. Good job, Kjartan. Now, you left out some of the weirdest stuff that happens. Well, there's a lot of other weird stuff that happens. I mean, Thorgunna uh, is buried in a different part of Iceland, and there's a whole episode that occurs on the way there during which uh, a farmer refuses to give lodgings to the pallbearers carrying her body. And so that night her corpse gets up from bed or from her coffin and makes a supper for them all out of the food the farmer claimed not to have. I believe she was standing Uh, there naked as well. Yes, yes. Everyone's a little bit distressed that she's (laughs) uh, bare naked. uh, But she makes a good dinner. They all sit down to eat it because what else do you do? Uh, And the farmer thereafter is very kind to them, and they have no further troubles on their journey. But I don't think you want to talk about Thorgunna's naked corpse. I think you want to talk about the seal head, don't you? Yes, I do. It's one of my favorite moments in this saga. It's really one of the strangest things I've ever read. It's all yours. Feel free to share. Okay, I will. That winter, shortly before Christmas, Thorod went out to Ness to get more dried fish for himself. There were six of them together in a ten-oared boat, and they spent the night at Ness. In the evening, after Thorod had gone and the fire had been lit, people came into the living room and saw a seal's head coming up through the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, as one does. (laughs) It's what happens. Now, one of the servants was the first to notice this as she came in. She grabbed a club in the doorway (laughs) and hit the seal on the head, which only made it rise... (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're enjoying this. It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Then then it turned its eyes toward the canopy from Thorgunna's bed. And one of the farmhands came up and started hitting the seal. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Lord. Sorry. It is funny, though. It is funny. I, what I can't tell is whether it's supposed to be. <laughs> it, I, it has to be. How can it not be? Oh. It's a spectral seal. It's probably pretty horrifying. <laughs> One of the farmhands came up and started hitting the seal, but it kept rising up further with every blow until its flippers emerged. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> At that, the man fainted, and everyone was paralyzed with horror except for young Kjartan, who I imagine must be r- laughing on the, f- on the floor, man. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, he clearly has no fear of the thing. No. So, okay. So there's young Kjartan who rushed up with a sledgehammer and struck the seal on the head. It was a powerful blow, but the seal only shook its head. (laughs) That's so funny. Do you need me to read this? I don't know, man. It was a powerful blow, but the seal only shook its head and gazed around. 
Carton went on hammering the head and driving it down like a nail into the floor till the seal disappeared. And then, and then he flattened out the floor above its head. Throughout the winter, it was always the same story. Carton was the only one who could put fear into the ghosts. That's the hardest passage in the world to read. It's so funny to me. Well, I noticed that Carton comes to the rescue there as well. Yeah, he does. He's, he's quite the hero. He's just like his father, much to yes. Snorri's annoyance. Uh, no. <laughs> now, before we picture, wrap up this part. Hold on. I just picture that, that game with the, uh, like, moles. The whack-a-mole? Whack-a-mole. That's all I see whack-a-ghost is whack-a-mole seal? with a sad-eyed seal <laughs> looking at the canopy. You remember to burn the bed sheets? <laughs> what about the bed sheets? Aww. Whack. Uh, <laughs> whack. Now, uh, before we wrap up this conversation... Uh, I said earlier that the value of Arabidja is in its details. Oh, now it's getting all serious. Um, <laughs> well, it can't all be wackago seal. Uh, all right. On a more serious note, and just before we wrap up this uh, part of the conversation, uh, I said at the beginning that the value of this saga is in its details. And some of them, I think, are tricky to spot on a first reading. One of my favorites is that the saga gives us a look at how a small family on the peninsula gets caught up in this Thor's nesting Kjallikling feud and is totally ground up by the violence between the groups. And you've got this one family that shows up actually over and over again at all the sort of more, most important battles uh, and most important events. Uh, and they're sort of just always there in the background. It starts during Thorbjorn's Stout's attack on Thorin Black's farm. One of the badly wounded survivors of the fighting is a man named Thor Arnerson, a respected fighter who loses a leg. He learns to walk with a wooden leg, gaining the almost inevitable Icelandic nickname of Woodleg as a result. Thor, along with his wife, Thorgrima Witchface, and his sons, Orn and Val Thorison, are part of the major events of the saga, but their involvement really costs them dearly. Uh, a little bit later on, when Thurid's second husband, Thorod Tribute Trader, ambushes Bjorn, Predavik champion, he calls on two of his servants and his friends, Orn and Val, the sons of Thor Woodleg. The five of them attack Bjorn when he's on his way home from visiting Thurid, but Bjorn fights back, killing both of the Thorisons. Bjorn gets a sentence of minor outlawry, because after all, he was the intended victim here. But Thor Woodleg and Thorgrima Witchface have lost both their sons. Later, Thorod tries killing Bjorn again, this time by paying Thorgrima to summon a blizzard to catch Bjorn outdoors and kill him. He survives, but I think we're meant to understand that Thorgrim is after a little payback here. Almost certainly, she'd have been willing to kill Bjorn for free. Mm-hmm. And finally, when Thurid and Thorod fail to destroy Thorgrim's bedclothes and the hellish series of hauntings begin at their farm, and all those people die, among the dead are both Thorir Woodleg and Thorgrim a Witchface. Mm-hmm. And it's actually Thorir's undead self who leads one of the two bands of undead who take over the house that winter. And despite his active afterlife, he and his entire family have been wiped out. There's, I mean, there is sort of real, you know, humanity and sort of tragedy in the story. Yeah, well. and I mean, if the real, putting aside the, the seal heads and the silliness, the, the story's really about Arnkel and Snorri and that competition for power. Mm-hmm. And these are the little people that get caught up in that. Yeah, yeah. All right, that does it for the summary part of our episode. Uh, we're going to stop here. And in the second part of our episode, uh, which will be appearing separately on the website, we'll be covering our judgments about Erbich's saga. Uh, we'll look at the bloodshed. Uh, the body count. We have to count up all the corpses that stack up around the place. Uh, we're going to talk about our outlawry, our thingmen, uh, and give the saga a final rating. 
And uh, don't forget to get in touch with us. You can find our podcast on sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook at Saga Thing Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye for now. I'm not the pheasant plucker. I'm the pheasant plucker's son. I am only plucking pheasants till the pheasant plucker comes.